I'm uh, extremely touched to see you all here and extremely happy to be with you. I have had the pleasure of being part of Ananda now for literally 50 years and also had the joy of traveling around the world a great deal on my own and also with Swamiji just being in the, um, the peanut gallery when he was doing whatever he was doing. Is peanut gallery an American phrase? Every so often, I, I mean, uh, an Indian phrase, yeah. It's the high, the high one, the high cheap seats where they're eating the peanuts. That's, <laughs> that's actually what it is. The circus, I think it's from the circus or something like that. You're, you're a very small person in the peanut gallery. You're not at all um, important, that's the point. So I travel, I've also traveled with Swamiji when he, of course, was the story and the rest of us were just trailing along behind, like literally, sometimes like little ducklings. <laughs> When Swamiji was in Los Angeles with, with Master, 1948 to 1952, um, Disneyland was newer than it is now and much more innocent. Uh, for many years, uh, as, as long as Walt Disney was alive, uh, Disneyland was very innocent. Now they've, uh, they've brought the popular culture into it, so it has a harsher edge than it used to have. But Swamiji always uh, really enjoyed it he thought that it was an extraordinary example of karma yoga at its best because Walt Disney himself, who, who founded it, was a, a very exacting. He felt that there was no detail too small to overlook and that the vibration of how things were done was exceedingly important. So Swami admired him and at Disneyland he would often point out to us how every little tiny detail was taken care of, even the things that seemed too small and he talked about a certain amusement ride with the pirates and you know that you just sort of go by for just a second but the expression on the face of each one of those little characters was very carefully drawn so that it had a real personality and he would use that he would hold that up to us as an example of of how we should serve god walt disney was just serving mickey mouse you know we should serve uh, god with that kind of power and w afterwards, after he was no longer with SRF and, of course, uh, found us, or we found him, uh, he, he, from time to time over the years, for, mostly through the 70s, he would take us to Disneyland. Um, he would often go to Los Angeles to do different programs because Los Angeles was so important to Master, it remained important, remains important to Swamiji as a place where we really want to share um, the, the teachings of these gurus and of Master himself. So um, every so often, for actually for his whole life, Swami would make another effort to sort of establish Ananda in Los Angeles and there would be festivals and teaching tours and a whole bunch of us would get in cars. It was also easily accept accessible being in Los Angeles, Southern California, Ananda Village, which was the only no Ananda there was, was in Northern so we could all just pile into cars and go down there. We didn't even have that many cars, but we piled into the ones we had. When I was traveling in New Zealand, like many years later, like 2014, I was traveling with Aryavan and Ishani, some of you know them. And there was a question about whether or not there was enough room in the car for all the people and all the stuff. There was an extremely uh, Virgo woman who had a very different concept than I did of how, how to pack a car. <laughs> I mean, she was very exact and everything needed breathing room. 
but there was enough room in the car. I said, look, <clears throat> full is when you put all the people in and then you put the book boxes on top of them to the roof. That's what full looks like. <laughs> so when we would go to Los Angeles, that's often how we'd pack because we just didn't have that many cars and all of us wanted to go. People in first, stuff in on top of it, and we'd all just, you know, ride like that. But in any case, we would follow Swami to Los Angeles and if there was a, an event, he would usually give us a day at Disneyland. And in, in those years, Swamiji was very strong. He was in his 40s. He always, he always uh, was taking karma on his body. So he always had some complicated health. For years it was that he developed very serious arthritis in his hips. Finally, uh, 20 years after Ananda was started, he had those hips replaced. As he put it, he didn't have to carry Ananda anymore. It could carry itself because he waited 20 years to do it. But even though he still had that pain, he was still very vigorous. And he knew Disneyland really well. I'm, I'm trying to give you a picture of what Swami was really like, because some of you saw him only at the end, or never saw him. And he, he was just so enthusiastic. And so he found joy in so many things. He would say when it was wrong to say that Master liked mangoes, for example, or Master liked this or liked that. Swami said, Master liked everything, but he could find joy. You know, certain things just brought him a particular joy, or he would decide to express that joy. Swamiji was so completely relaxed and so completely natural. There was never any, well, in, in truth what it was, he wrote about Master in this way, and uh, described Master in a certain way. In fact, Almost everything that Swami wrote about Master could have been written about him. And one of the reasons Swamiji could write it is because he understood it. And he talked about Master having attained his God realization so long ago. He said that he wore it like a comfortable old jacket. That's how he described it. You know, there was no necessity for him to hold himself aloof from the world. And without, you know, making any comparisons, because it's pointless to make comparisons, but Ramana Maharshi, for an example, was a completely different kind of saint. And he was extremely aloof from the world. You know, he, he lived only in that very small area. He renounced everything. He never participated in the world to a very large extent, although he was a very natural man. I mean, he was a natural person. We imagine that saints are like a, a, a race apart, when they're really just the perfection of our own nature. So the loving kindness and the consideration and the awareness of people's needs. You, you read the stories about Ananda Ma also, who was to a certain extent aloof from the world. But all the, the true stories about her talk about how incredibly attentive she was and conscious she was and how she loved to play with the children and just at ease. Well, Swamiji was just like that. He was completely at ease. And, and we would go to Disneyland, and he knew all his favorite rides, and he knew where everything was. And I remember one particular trip where there were like 12 of us, or 14 of us with him, because we'd been manning the booth at some festival. And Swamiji literally just would move so fast through the park that we were holding hands in order not to get separated from him, you know? And it was, it was really exactly like the, the, the mother goose and all her little goslings, you know, just running along like that. 
And for reasons I don't know, we were dressed in Indian clothes. I, to my, this day I can't think on why on earth we dressed in Indian clothes, but we did. Now, is that really true? That's how I picture it in my mind, but that seems so nutty. But that does seem like what we were doing. And so we were, and that was very unusual in the 70s to see, you know, white faces in saris. We didn't even wear, you know, this. We wore saris. <laughs> my memory is doubting because it seems so preposterous, but somehow I think we did it. I think we must have dressed that way for the, for the conference or something. Swami, Swami always thought that Indian dress, especially, especially saris for women, was more attractive than anything else. So conceivably, we wore it just to please him, you know, because if he wanted to see us that way, why would we not? I mean, who else would we be trying to please? You know, our image in the mirror, you know, it's like... <laughs> but we ran like goslings behind Swami all through Disneyland, and he liked the really creative rides. He liked the ones that were whimsical and beautiful. He didn't see any point in scaring yourself to death by turning yourself upside down. <laughs> I think we actually, somebody persuaded him to go on one of the roller coasters, and he got off, he was perfectly calm, and he just simply said, why? <laughs> that was kind of the end of that. We never tried that one again on him. <laughs> but what happened, I believe I put this story in this book. At the end of the day in Disneyland at that time, they had what they called the electric parade, which was all the Disney characters would be wearing uh, luminous lights. I mean, I don't know what they do now with all the LED and all that stuff. It must be really phenomenal. But then it was just people with all these lights on them and they'd walk down the street and it would be getting dark and it was very magical. It, it reminded you of the astral world and as I said, everything was innocent so that you weren't listening to harsh, horrible music. It was all very light. And uh, so we wanted to have a good seat. <laughs> so we went over to the sidewalk where the, on Main Street there and we were just standing there thinking about it and, and some bhav came over Swami, just some other mood. I mean, he, one of, of course, the many reasons why it was a joy to be with him is you never knew what was going to happen. And he wore, he wore his spirituality quite naturally, um, but every so often you would just feel something would shift and there was just, there was no circumstance in which I didn't want to be with him. I mean, we could just be going to the dry cleaners to pick up the dry cleaning, because you just never knew when grace would descend. And it would just descend in the middle of the most unexpected times and all of a sudden we'd just be transported walking through the grocery store or something like that. And of course he was wildly entertaining because he was so interesting. He just always had an interesting thing to say about virtually everything. Everything. So we were standing there on the sidewalk and, and by now there are hundreds of people around and they're from all countries. For some reason, there seemed to me like there was a lot of Japanese around us when he said this. Push, people pushing their baby carriages and, you know, the whole, the whole human drama was just right there being acted out in front of us. And so Ami just turned and said, and he said, speaking of Master, he said, imagine it, that Master didn't merely love all those people, all these people, he was all these people. And, and we all just, just like you, we all went like this. And then this mood came over us and we sat down right on the sidewalk and just started meditating. And that was not common that we would do something like that, but we just sat down on the, because we were overcome by the, the, 
feeling of what Swami had put into words and even more deeply what he was obviously feeling himself. Imagine not merely loving them, but being them. And I think that's why the Japanese and their babies stick in my mind, because it was just kind of like them too. <laughs> I don't have anything against Japanese people. It's just that it was just the farther, a farther reach, you know, of, of, of the, that nobody owns, nobody owns the guru, that the guru owns us, but nobody owns the guru. So we just sat down and went into a very deep meditation. We meditated about half an hour. I mean, we're right in the middle of Disneyland, and, and there's about 20 of us, or would I say 15, all just on the sidewalk. And we didn't really come out until Tinkerbell was right in front of us <laughs> doing something or another, you know. And then we sort of opened our eyes, and in the meantime, all, the whole sidewalk had filled in around us. So there were all these hundreds of people when we were just sitting. And so we just stood up and went on like this. You know, it just, it was remarkable to, to, to live with such a person, as you can well imagine. First, someone who would initiate you into Korea and then take you to Disneyland. <laughs> and then know Disneyland better than you would ever know it, like that, and then shift you into a state of consciousness where you could go into a deep meditation with hundreds of people milling around you and really not even know where you were. I mean, not every day was that dramatic, but a lot of days were that dramatic. Just something else happening. I, I think I also put this in my first book about Swami, but this was one of my favorite moments. I worked as Swamiji's, uh, first as his secretary, and then the modern phrase is personal assistant. That's sort of what I was to him. A lot of us were. I was one of them. He, he had relationships with you know, many, many people, but that was me. And uh, I was his uh, actual secretary, so I kept his correspondence and his appointments and things like that. So the way, the way we lived in those early years at Ananda Village, it was exceedingly primitive. Some of you have visited more recently, but there was nothing much there, just a few old buildings. And we were, we were very poor. Um, we were rich in any way that mattered, but money wasn't the thing we had the most of. And so everything we did, we had to scratch it from the ground up. And uh, we didn't have many facilities, electricity, telephones, we didn't have, internet didn't exist, but we didn't have electricity anyway, so what difference would it have made? <laughs> um, the mail delivery even was only to one central area. Swami's home, which is now Crystal Hermitage, which at that time was a single dome, which for those of you who've seen it, was just the living room. There's photos in my book. It was just halfway down a hill, and for a long time it was just a little trail. There were no steps, there was nothing there. And he was completely isolated. Um, and then um, I and a few others lived near him, but I go like this because we walked over the hill to the, what is now the central area where the, there was the, an office building and there was a telephone and there was mail delivery, so it was like super civilized over there. There was no heat in the building, and we had really snowy cold winters, but we had a telephone, so we had, you know, you can't have everything. <laughs> so we would just dress, really. And, you know, you wore more clothes, you wore more clothes inside than outside. And, and one girl literally had a heating pad that she would put on her uh, typesetting machine, you know, just to warm it up. And then we'd have these little tiny space heaters that would keep your feet from freezing. I loved it all. I never thought of any of it as hardship. It was just so much fun. And every afternoon, 
uh, Seva and I, and sometimes a few others, would walk back over the hill and deliver Swami's mail, deliver his messages. He was writing The Path, his autobiography during that time, so he spent most of his time at home in seclusion. And then we would spend, we would have tea, and usually, we would sp usually I would cook dinner for him or for us, usually. And then we'd stay until the evening. So all of this is to set the stage of one day he was talking to Seva. She was then the financial manager of the community. And I was not doing anything in particular, and I was sitting outside his line of vision, like over here. And I'm not quite sure what they were doing, but I was just, he wasn't turned at all and looking at me. And uh, one of those moments came, this, this bhav came over me, and I, I was just listening to them talk, just thinking about how, how did I ever get so lucky? And I really, I had no answer. I figured I must have washed the feet of lepers for many, many lifetimes, <laughs> you know, to just have earned a birth like this. And the mood of it was, became very deep. And Swami's talking to Seva, and he said to her, uh, where's Asha? Where did she go? And I said, I'm still here, sir. I'm sitting behind you. He said, why can't I feel your consciousness? I said, because, sir, it's unusually still. <laughs> and he sort of closed his eyes like this, and he said, ah, oh, yes, there you are. <laughs> I came to Ananda village, the, the ashram there, out of m multiple desires that were all, that I could see could all be fulfilled. I'm, I'm kind of a hundred percenter about what I do. I, I'm not good at being divided, and I'm not good at holding back. These are both my virtues and my faults. Almost everyone's worst quality is their best quality taken about an inch farther than it ought to go. It's a very interesting introspection and also observation. Just you, you, you're good at it and then you push it a little too far. So, I, you know, fanaticism and enthusiasm, there's kind of a short edge there. And for me, just, well, it's not even worth going into. But in any case, I really wanted an integrated, all-in-one kind of life. I wanted the life to matter, and I really wanted to help people, but I wanted to actually help them meaning I needed to know something, which was the biggest problem. I had all the enthusiasm in the world, but without wisdom, what good is it going to do you? So Swamiji, and, and then also I needed, I mean desperately needed somebody to show me which way was forward, because nobody around me seemed to know. I picked up the philosophy of self-realization when I was 18 through Vivekananda, but it was still just a theory to me. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And then Swami was the living example. And he was a teacher, meaning he was a public person. It wasn't like I had to go and pose myself on him. It was his incarnation to share what Master had given him. So he was, and he spoke English. He spoke English, and he spoke English with my accent, which was just nice. I mean, I could have managed. I've learned to manage, but it was nice. And he had a place. And that place had a retreat. So it wasn't only that I, I could go and hide in the mountains, I could also help people. I could give people whatever little bit I had, I could pass it on. My enthusiasm, which is sometimes my fault, is that whatever little bit I have, I pass it on 
sometimes before I've actually digested it myself, <laughs> and sometimes with more enthusiasm than people want. I remember my first effort to convert someone was a relative of mine. This, there's a peculiarity when you first get on the path. You get fascinated with the most, um, uh, the oddest things. And when you first try to persuade others, one's judgment is often not good. So I was fascinated with the fact that um, we could renounce desires, which like, how many people like walking down the street really want to renounce desires? But somehow that seemed like a real selling point of the spiritual path to me. <laughs> so I'm talking to my relative and I'm trying to be logical and persuade her about the benefit of this path. And so I start talking about, you know, the, how, di how disappointing it is. We, all, we have all these desires and we fulfill them, but then when we fulfill them, we still don't really feel fulfilled. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm building a case and she's nodding her head and I'm thinking, wow, number one, I need six in order to be liberated and here's number one. <laughs> so I'm going on and on about, you know, desires and the uselessness of them. She nods her head and said, yes, that's why it's so important to keep on wanting new things. <laughs> Whoa, we sort of missed the point there. <laughs> but nonetheless, that, that thought that there had to be a meaningful way to live, and if I could possibly find it, I would spread the word, was really deep in me. So when I met Swami when I was 22, 1969, that's where I get the 50 years from, um, I just, I didn't look back. It was just what I, what I was going to do. It took me more than a year to extricate myself from commitments that I had and people that I was involved with, but I never, I never wavered. I just, I had to hold on until I got there, June 1st, 1971. But uh, the desire to pass on to others whatever was given to me was absolutely integral to my spiritual aspiration. And one of the reasons that I was so drawn to Swami is that that was integral to his way of being a devotee also. You know, he'd been commissioned by Master to do a great work. And in 1969, he was just beginning Ananda. He was, he was himself, the reason he was where he was, which was in Palo Alto at Stanford University, is because he was living in San Francisco and he was teaching classes all over the Bay Area the Bay Area is, you know, it's about like a, a, a two and a half hour driving distance from end to end with not the kind of traffic you have. And every night he would, he would just go through the various cities there. Every night he'd give a class. Then on the weekend he'd drive four hours up to where the land was, give a weekend retreat, then come back and do it all over again. It was a demanding schedule so that he could earn the money, so he could put up the first building, so that we could start Ananda. It was all, I mean, he was not a, a cave yogi. He was there and he was in the world and he was doing something that was going to matter and he believed in what he was doing and he was commissioned by his master and all of that was just mother's milk to me. And that was just what I was looking for. He had all the combination of things that were important to me. And he knew me. I mean, he, he, he understood me like from the, from the start. Um, what I was thinking with that was that Swamiji himself said that Master often said to him, you have a great work to do. And that became for Swamiji this compelling, compelling mantra. You know, a, an egoic person would think, oh, I have a great work to do. Well, how about that? 
for Swamiji, it was, you know, I'll never take a day off until I'm out of this body because I, my master is expecting me to do something great for him, but the greatness is for him, not, not for me, but for him. So, but Swamiji commented that, and now the exact detail of how this goes, I, I don't quite remember at the moment, but Swamiji himself had a very, well, when Swamiji first read Autobiography of a Yogi in New York City in 1948 in September, and then took the next bus across the country to California, already on that bus ride, I mean, he only read the book, he hadn't even met Master. Swami's enthusiasm was, everybody needs to know about this, because that was his temperament. And then Swami <coughs> talked about when he was with Master, he had some experience in which, again, that, that powerful desire, not merely to become enlightened himself, but to tell everyone. Swamiji even at one point said, I know I'm not going to be able to persuade everyone to adopt the spiritual path, but I like to believe I can. <laughs> he said, it motivates me to think that might be possible. That's why he wrote 140 books from every angle that there was, from making money to raising children to doing art, um, to being a salesman, you know, just because he could find an angle that he could say it. So. Um, he, he said he had some experience of it, an even deeper commitment to sharing Master's teachings. And it was after that that Master started saying to him, you have a great work to do. Because what Swami was also expressing was that Master understood who Swamiji was and he guided him according to his own nature. And this is a very important part of the spiritual path, that the true Master guides you according to your own nature. And so it's not as if doing a great work is really more important or better, but it was Swami's destiny to do that, and that was, that was how he would find his freedom. Rajasi, who was Master's most advanced male disciple, he, 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 Master didn't even have him teach. And he had a little meditation group, and Master told him, <laughs> when he lived away from Mount Washington, Master told him, oh, you should close that. And when Swamiji was working on the magazine for Master, the Self-Realization Fellowship magazine. He thought, well, Gyanamata is, you know, so advanced. He asked her to write articles. And she, I'm not sure she even responded to his request because it wasn't for spiritually beneficial for her to do that. And so it's, it's what is beneficial to us, what we ourselves, where our satisfaction will come from. I say we become the kind of saint that, that we already are. So, I know I'm going to be a, a rather noisy one. <laughs> it just doesn't seem likely that, you know, that, that things will change that much. <laughs> and we, just, we just are what we are. So, I had a very deep desire to share with people. It's just always been who I have been. And uh, Swami read that in me right away. And he also read and this, uh, these are things I've actually just come to realize in the last month that I've been talking about this. He also read my weaknesses and my strengths. He knew how it would play out. I mean, you, you look back on this over years. I have to also say here about Swami, this is a very important part of what an advanced soul is really like, because otherwise we start misreading both ourselves and each other. One of the things I've tried very hard to do in this book is make Swami authentic and give us an authentic picture of wh what spiritual greatness looks like. 
because there's a natural desire on the part of devotees to, to um, create legends and then to sort of brush away the inconvenient edges, you know, and that's happened to a large extent in Yogananda's life. It's been changed slightly by the movie Awake, in which there's a little more authenticity about Master's actual mission here. But I believe at one point, if I'm not mistaken, they still refer to his vacation in Mexico, which Swami described his master walking away from the whole thing and not being sure he was ever going to come back. He was being persecuted in the courts, he was subject to yellow journalism, which means, you know, scandal in the newspapers. Uh, he was struggling for money. As Master said, in India, they support the guru. The disciples support the guru. He said in America, the guru has to support not only himself, but also the disciples. <laughs> so he was in a constant struggle for money. Um, his, by, he was by no means universally um, acclaimed as this great master. He was vilified, um, false accusations. He had lawsuits against him, as I was saying, constant money troubles. At one point, he just said, I, you know, I, I mean, why am I doing this? So he went to Mexico, where he would sometimes go. I think the, the mood of the country suited him. And he didn't know if he'd ever come back. I mean, you can call that a vacation, <laughs> but it's really very different, and it's much more authentic for us to understand. Now, self, it's, it's hard to get your mind around, and I believe me, with Swamiji, this one one of the most challenging things about writing about him. It's hard to get your mind around how, how a highly realized being is also human. It's just sort of what that actually means. Um, I, I've sort of... Swami said the phrase once, let's see, uh, to be omnipresent means that you're not only present in infinity, but you're also present in the infinitesimal, is how he put it. And the way I've translated that just over years of living with Swamiji and also Master, is that when the Master incarnates, he, he comes all the way into the, into the physical world. He comes all the way into the human world. And he, he comes in with a with a, a more tender and a more open heart than most of us have the courage to bring. I, I thought that the way you're spiritual is that you're a little bit aloof. Okay, we're not going to suffer, we're not going to get engaged, so I'll just be a little aloof. But that is, the, aloof is not the same as free. Aloof says I have to put a little bit of a border around me because I don't want to get involved and free, which I began to understand from Swami, was I live without fear. I just like, what difference does it make? And I'm, I'm human and I'm watching the human drama and I'm participating in the human drama, but my, this, this is the best way to think about it. It's like for most of us, the human drama is the story. It's like, you know, our, it's like a, we live with blinders like this and this is my family, and this is my disappointments, and this is my heartbreak. These are my successes like this. And we experience them, or we suppress them, or we hide from them, or whatever we do, but this is our world. Now, um, when you see the Masters, or when I saw Swami, because I, of course, never knew Master, but when I saw Swamiji, for a long time, I, as I said, I thought he was shuttered against the human world, that he basically because he lived through it so differently than I did, I thought, he just, he's repudiating it. But what I realized was, he was, he was fully in it. 
But this was the consciousness. So there was no need to, to run away from this because it happened in this context. You see the difference? That's what transcendence is. We think transcendence is, well, I thought transcendence was suppression for a long time and until suppression stops working, <laughs> you know, then at a certain point the wild horse just kicks down the stable door and that's the end of that. <laughs> um, but Swami had no need to suppress anything because it could all run through him because there was also this bigger context. But it's a very important distinction because it's important about how we live. Because otherwise we start imitating what we think um, it is to remain calm and centered, but because we're so vulnerable, we do that with great tension. Someone spoke about uh, an American teacher, uh, not an Indian teacher in America, who, who went through, was a horrific thing, and his whole ashram turned against him, and it was just an American adventure. And uh, <laughs> one of his uh, supporters said afterwards that being with him, being with the guru, that guru during that period of time, he said, was so instructive because it wasn't so much that the guru was going through a hard time as that a hard time was going through him. You see the difference? It's like this is who you are and a hard time is running through you. Whereas if this is who you are, then you're going through it. So the reason these advanced souls, Master included, incarnate and Swamiji incarnated is to show us how to live. I mean, really, what good would it do us to just think that their example is irrelevant? And there's a tremendous amount of confusion now about spiritual life, what it really is. That's why these masters came. They wanted to make it practical and real. And that's why Swamiji came with them, to make it practical and real. That's why I tried to write the book, to make it practical and real. And I had the experience going back to saying that Swami knew who I was and knew a lot of things that were very, very helpful to me. He was the only person in my world who never misunderstood me. That's really saying a lot. You know, I mean, who understands anybody? We try. But he always, knew, he always knew what I was really doing. Actually, it got to the point where he would say, how are you? And I would say, how do I know, sir? You tell me. <laughs> it was sort of a joke between us, but then he would tell me, you know, because how would I know? I'll just make something up from my aunt's perspective. I just, I don't have any knowledge. But, uh, so, because of the karma I had with Swamiji, which I, I, I it just was what it was, I, I had, I recognized him literally instantly. I recognized him, the only way I can say it is for who he was the moment I saw him. Which was actually, as it turns out, quite a, quite a, quite a gift. Because for many years of Swami's incarnation, he basically kept his consciousness somewhat veiled, more than somewhat, a lot veiled. He was in America, he didn't want a whole bunch of ignorant Westerners playing the guru game with him. <laughs> It was also the 60s and the 70s, and there were so many uh, wannabe gurus all over the place. Swami's comment was, there are, there are plenty of gurus. What we need now is examples of what it means to be a disciple. And so he just, but I, I, I somehow saw all through that and realized I cooperated with what he was doing, but I could feel what he was doing rather than thinking he wasn't worthy of the veneration that he was worthy of. 
And I, whatever he wanted was fine with me. I didn't need to make a big show of it. It was just was what it was. He was master incarnated for me. That would be the way I would put it. Um, now, let's see. Oh, yes. And so there was this, uh, this realization from the very first that I was witness to something that was very unusual. You know, that this kind of, I mean, first you start with this line of gurus, and you have Master, and, um, you know, I, I met Swami in 1969, Master was already passed, but it wasn't even 20 years. You know, it was, it was really much earlier on. The whole future of self-realization in the world was really just beginning to happen, but I knew that this was magnificent, unique, historical, and had implications so far beyond my little tiny incarnation. But there I was. I was a, as I put it, I was a witness to greatness. I was a witness to history. And I had a, first, a front row seat. I wasn't watching from the peanut gallery now. I had a, a front row seat. And I could feel this, was, uh, this wasn't just for me. And I was very eager, and in fact, just like from the very beginning of my time at Ananda, I would always, always, the phrase I began to use was, I was always translating Swami for people. <laughs> I was always explaining to people what he was doing and why he was doing it. I mean, always. I, I wasn't always right, but I usually was. <laughs> and I was, or I was communicating, because he was in seclusion a lot, and I was seeing him every day. So if people wanted to know, they had to come through someone who knew, so I, I was like that. He saw all this in me. The other thing he saw in me was uh, a whole lot of karma that had to be worked out. You know, just a whole lot of unresolved God knows what's that, that we just carry over. All of us have a, our full allotment of baggage and some of us even pay for extra suitcases in order to bring it in, you know? <laughs> even to this even to this day, I say to people, I have many virtues, but traveling light is not one of them. <laughs> so I, I had, I still do, but much less. I had a very complex psychology, just very complex psychology. So Ami saw all of that. So within the first year that I was with him, which would have meant when I was still 24, he said to me, I want you to write about me. And he saw my look of absolute panic when he said that, and so he said, but not yet, <laughs> like that. And then he said, I'll help you, I'll help you. Um, and so right from the start, I knew I had this assignment from him. And I'm a very confident speaker. I, I pretty much always have been, but I was a very phobic writer. I don't really know exactly what happened to me in past lives, who knows. I don't know if I got a lot of, gotten a lot of trouble from writing, if, if, I got, if I was tortured and killed for the pamphlets I put out advocating, <laughs> advocating revolution, which I probably did, you know, just, I really don't know what the deal was, but whatever it was, it was part of the twisted psychology that I had, was that the idea of writing, I, I didn't mind talking about Swamiji and I was happy to share about him, but the idea of writing in itself just put me in a panic. So, I finished this book, well actually a year ago, was when I actually finished it. It took me m much of the year to get it published, with <laughs> 220,000 words and all the photographs. It just turns out to be a huge job. Um, 
I worried about writing that book every day, every single day. And it was, it was the tension point of my whole life because everything had to be organized around the fact that eventually I was going to have to do this. And I just worried about it. Now, I, I, I've said that many times, but it just occurred to me in the last few weeks that Swami knew that, that it would, that the fact that he'd asked me to do it, my commitment to sharing him, meant that I could not escape the assignment. Because he's given me a lot of other assignments I managed just not to do. <laughs> I just forgot about them or just abandoned them. But I, he knew I could never abandon this one. And so what it became was that I was pinned and then all the karmic issues that related to it, I could never get very far away from them. So it was my salvation, is what I'm actually saying. And I just like, a lot of things happen to us and we only understand them later. I, I, couldn't, have said, I couldn't have said that to you two months ago, because I just didn't understand why he told me so young. I mean, what it did cause me to do was that I always carried a notebook. I mean, it just, I usually did anyway, but I always carried a notebook. I was never with Swami without a pencil and a piece of paper and notebook in my hand to just write down what had happened or write, or write it down later. Saved every piece of paper, every letter, every email, took notes of every conversation. By the end, I had 15 banker's boxes, you know, like this, file boxes stuffed with notes. It took me a year and a half to organize them when I actually sat to organize it. I, all I can say is, thank God he didn't live longer. <laughs> and, and thank heaven I wasn't more conscientious. I'd still be in, upstairs in my house organizing the notes. You know, just, and then had to cross-reference everything, subject, chronology. I, and, and then in, in 2003 or four, right after Swami moved to India, around that time, I, I sat down to try to write this book. Swami thought, I've moved to India, we could really use a biography, it would be a really good time, why don't you start writing it? By that time I'd, no, I hadn't written anything at that point. So I flailed away at it for like, literally, literally a couple of years. Just flailed away and ended, at the end of two years, I had learned so much about myself and I'd overcome a lot of really rotten characteristics, but I didn't have a single page. That's what I said to Swami, I said, except for the fact that I don't have a single usable page, this has been a wonderful spiritual period for me, because total failure and global humiliation really do a good job. You know, the, <laughs> the whole world knew that Asha had retired from everything else she was doing because she was finally going to write this book about Swamiji, and you know, two and a half or three years later, I emerged with nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good for you. It's not, it wasn't funny then. It wasn't funny at all. <laughs> it's very funny now, but it wasn't funny then. In the middle of that somewhere, uh, Swami saw that I was a zero on it, and he asked Davy to write the book that she wrote, Faith is My Armor. What happened after Davy wrote that is that I was freed from the biography, which was, you know, that was the big word, and I wrote this book, which was just stories, because after all, Davy had done the biography now, and I was free. So I wrote this one, um, which assuaged some of it, but I knew it wasn't the one still. It still hovered out there. When I finished this one, or when it was not quite finished, Swami was living in India, he was living in 
the house he had in Gorgon, the house he bought, Guru Kripa. Right, and he had put a, a tent on the roof, um, a sort of a cloth room, it was more than a tent, that he'd built up there for Jyotish and Devi so they could come and stay with him because uh, others were living in the house, there were no other guest bedrooms. So it was a whole room, it just had cloth walls upstairs. I think it even had, maybe even had air conditioning up there. Anyway, so he moved me into that and I brought the manuscript of, th of this book. And no one had ever written about Swamiji the way this one is. This is people's experiences of him. But Swamiji always taught us something. He said this himself. He said he never told a story about Master that didn't illustrate a universal principle. Because otherwise it's just hero worship. It's just personality adoration. Which of course is really easy to fall into when you're with these souls whose personalities are so exquisite. But, so Swami had trained us, and, and it was very interesting, I went to a, I, I, rare, I rarely visited, very rarely in my life, visited other ashrams or other teachers. It would happen occasionally, but I never felt the need to, so I rarely did. Also, anyway, I was in a position of leadership, and whatever I did became what everybody did, so I also had to think about the implications. But I was in another city, and there was uh, a well-known uh, woman spiritual teacher, and I was interested in her, so I went to hear her satsang. And she was lovely. But before she spoke, some of her disciples got up and told stories. And I listened to them, and it was, it was so interesting to me, the con contrast, because all of them told really interesting stories about this very spiritually powerful woman who was also a little exotic in the way she manifested in the world. And so her disciples would tell, you know, really weird stories about things that had happened to them, miraculous, semi-miraculous, life-changing things. But, the, but not one of them universalized the story. So the more they talked, I mean, I watched myself, the more left out we all felt. Oh, you're so lucky. You got to be there. You got to have all that attention. And here I am. I just don't have anything, do I? So far from feeling uplifted and encouraged at the end of it, we all just felt a little sad. <laughs> you, you can see, and it wasn't, I mean, they, they meant well, it was complete devotion, but it was, it was not on principle. So if you read everything, everything that Swami's ever said about Master, there's always a principle behind it. And he very carefully stays away. He, there's, there's more, much more than he never told us because it was just about the personality, and he didn't want people to think that Master was one body that died. And, and that we're stuck now. We had to have a way of drawing his reality to us. So when, because I was well trained by Swamiji, when I write, wrote about him, I knew what he wanted. Because I could write easily just pages and pages of, of laudatory stories about how glorious he was. And, I gathered these stories from everyone and I had to edit severely. Well, I had to actually rewrote. I put them all into one voice. But sometimes people got mad at me because I cut out the five laudatory paragraphs at the end of the story <laughs> because I knew it wouldn't help anybody. But I drew a lot of conclusions. I interpreted people's experiences. I explained Swamiji. And I just did. I, and I was very confident. I was very confident that I knew what I was doing. But I, no, no one had ever written like this before, and I had never written like this. I talked like this a lot. So Swami invited me over to India, and, 
and we sat side by side on the couch and he read every page of it. And for me, I was, I was intensely interested. I wasn't at all nervous at that point. I mean, it was the first book I'd written, but I had actually done it and I knew I'd done it. And I was, you know, I was willing to just, sh I wasn't afraid for him to see it. I should add that he threw away a lot of my writing for like 30 years, so there was a reason for me to be afraid. <laughs> he would literally, I'd hand him a piece of writing, he would hold it in his hand and say, oh, there's not enough magnetism. <laughs> he wouldn't even read it. And then often he would rewrite whatever. I used to do a lot of publicity and articles and things. You know, every third or fourth piece would get through. But, and he would say, oh, but it's very helpful what you wrote, Asha, because it told me what I didn't want to say. <laughs> it eliminated options. It was not easy. Again, this is, this is very funny now. It was not funny then. <laughs> but the thing was, he was right. You know, what, uh, someone asked me, you know, basically, what did I contribute to what Swami was able to work through me? What did I contribute? And I said, nothing. You should have seen me when he found me, you know, just lying in the ditch like that and picked me up, you know. I promise you, nothing. But the woman persevered in the demand, you know, wanting me to take some ego credit, which, you know, you're there, you're trying so hard not to have an ego and people are determined that you will have one. <laughs> but I listened to her and then I said, I'm a truth seeker. I really do want the truth. So if there wasn't enough magnetism in it, there wasn't enough magnetism. You know, he never, he never criticized me in a way that wasn't true. One time, though, I remember we went over to Assisi to visit him, and I, I, he put me in charge with others of this community in Palo Alto for 30 years. That's where I've been. And, you know, there was, it wasn't always easy. There was tempestuous personalities, lots of things. And anyway, we went over to Assisi, and after we weren't there very long, and suddenly Swami really just read the riot act. He does it very sweetly. You know, it's, he's very sweet. He's not even stern, but he's definite. And if you're listening, you hear it. And he told us this such and so situation had been reported to him and this and this and this, and that was really not the way we should have handled it and blah, blah, blah. It was, it was pretty strong criticism, which was unusual. He didn't take you on like that that often. And, you know, he just took it. It was fine. There was no point in saying anything. Yes, sir. Thank you. We'll keep it in mind. It's very good. A couple of days later, when we were just doing something else, I said, you know, sir, all your facts are wrong on that situation. He said, oh, yes, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, if he's going to take the trouble to correct you, that's not the time to say, but excuse me, sir, that's not really what I said. They said this and this and that was, it's just that wasn't the response. The response is, yes, sir. But I said, you know, just in case you're curious, all the facts were wrong. Oh, yes, he said, I know. But then, he, but then his, his very interesting comment, he said, but if people could even say such a thing about you, whatever that was, you have a problem. Which is perfect. It was facts and truth are not the same thing. The facts are all garbled, but the, the essential discontent that people expressed to Swami was absolutely valid, and it didn't matter whether the facts were true or not in that situation. Anyway, I was a truth seeker. And I sailed out with this book and just started explaining Swami to the world on a very, um, you know, on a, how, how can I put it, on a level beyond my actual experience and portfolio, you know, speaking of things that I, do, I don't know in my own life, but I know in his life, if you understand that. So we sat next to each other and he 
uh, just went over it line by line. And to my astonishment, he just kept turning the pages. And we actually only had a dispute about two pieces, and, and one was extremely interesting. Uh, at a certain point he had said that he, he looked too youthful, and he said he prayed to Master because he felt he needed to look more mature so that he would uh, have more authority. And his hair began to turn white right after that. So I had written that Swami prayed for his hair to turn white. And Swami said, I did not. <laughs> I said, sir, I remember we were standing in your kitchen. I, you know, I have a, I have a, I've been gifted with a very vivid memory for him. We were standing in the kitchen. It was this and this. I did not. I said, sir, if I misremember things like this, this whole book is really going to be kind of dicey. Like, what are we doing here? But he insisted. I insisted. Where all this, like, chutzpah came from to insist. But that night when I went to sleep, things often come to me in the middle of the night. I, like, I actually feel Swami wakes me up in the middle of the night and corrects me. So in the middle of the night I woke up and said, oh yes, of course. See, Swami would never have told Master what to do. So all he did was put in front of Master what the problem was. I'm too youthful looking. It would be better if I looked more mature. So Swami was absolutely certain he hadn't said he'd prayed for his hair to turn white. You see? And so, but I feel, I felt like the reason I made that one error in the whole book was because I really needed to get the principle. And the principle was, if you're going to write about a great soul, you have to be really careful. You can't just be casual because you will express a principle that isn't true. To say that Swami prayed for white hair is a principle that isn't true because he never told Master what to do. You see how subtle it gets? And all of these things begin to matter. The other, the other dispute we had was that in Assisi, Italy, uh, sometime after he was in India, so it's about 2004 or 2005, um, there was a, a, a crazy man filed a crazy lawsuit against our community in Assisi. And we had lawsuits in America, but they were always civil lawsuits. In Assisi, the same charges actually became criminal lawsuits, you know, with prison as part of the option. And it was uh, taking advantage of weak-minded people and enslaving them and uh, various other things. They were laws written to bust the mafia. And somehow or another they got applied to Ananda. And uh, eight or nine of our people actually got taken off to prison. They were released within five days, but we didn't know when they went to prison what was going to happen because it's all mafia. It's like you have to take the key players and you have to put them in prison and so that they won't kill the policemen, you know, really serious stuff like that. And Swami was in India and he was much too unwell to travel. And if he'd been in America, he would have, in, in, in Italy, he would have been arrested. And in fact, they had waited, thinking until he, he was going to come back. But Jyotish and Devi came. And Jyotish resembles Swamiji. And they moved into Swami's house. And the policemen who were watching the house thought that Swami was there. So at five in the morning they bust into Swami's house to arrest Kriyananda, but all they have is Jyotish. You know, and his documents all prove that who he is. So Swami's in Italy, and he's just gone to Italy like two months before, so it, I mean to India. So it looks like he's flown the country. But he couldn't get back because his, his health was too poor, he couldn't get on the plane. Plus, everyone said if he came back they would immediately arrest him. 
and everybody would be so distracted by Swami being in prison that nobody would be able to deal with anything. So he was persuaded to stay in India. And then one day he, and, uh, he tripped and the, sh the, the shower, with the step-in shower had a lip, uh, a tile lip about four inches high and about four inches wide. And he fell f flat on his back like this and just smashed into it. I mean, you all remember this and just hit, hit really hard and incredibly painful that lasted for a really long time. He says to me on the phone, oh, I fell in the shower yesterday. I, uh, I prayed to Divine Mother. I really hope this helps the karma in Italy. That's just what he said. Basically, he was taking the karma of the Italian situation onto his own body, which I know he did many times. You know, it's a very subtle thing. Master, in his healing techniques, will tell us that if you lose an arm, you can regenerate it with willpower. I mean, like really far out things about how you can just use your will and energy to, to, to change things. But about taking the karma of someone else into your own body, he says, advanced yogis can do it by a secret technique. That's 100% of what he says about it. So when I wrote the book, because I had that and he'd said it to me, I put that in there that he'd taken the karma for Italy. He's, and then he said, you can't write that. I said, sir, it's the point of the whole story. And he said, you can't write it. I said, Swamiji, you said that to me. I mean, what am I going to do with this whole thing? You can't write that. And we just, it was just an impasse like this, and he was definite. So I went up to go to bed, and then the next morning, I woke up at four. I often woke up really early. I woke up at four with the, with the solution about how to save the story, but finesse it a little bit. Swami walks in at five. I'm already there writing it. He walks in, you can't note problems, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it settled, and he was, there was, I was not gonna get around him. He was, and then he said, it, he said, even if it's true, and he said, put it that way, even if it's true, he said, it's not for me to say. And I, what I felt when he said that a little bit was, he tells a story about Master and uh, being at, he, this is in the path. He's just, Master's having lunch with some guests. And Swami was serving the guests and Dr. Lewis was there. And uh, one of the guests says to Master, I understand Dr. Lewis was your first disciple in America. And uh, Swami said that Master wouldn't talk about it in a casual way at lunch because discipleship was just too sacred to discuss over the soup. You know, it just, he wasn't gonna do it. There's, there's many things that are just between you and God. The fact that Swami had said it to me was because it was true, and I wasn't the only one to whom he said it, but I, I tried to put it in a book, uh, because he did want us to know. And also, he, he was a person, he, he wanted to talk. It was very interesting, that particular thing, People started saying he slipped in the bathroom. And Swami, Swami would say, I didn't slip, I fell. <laughs> but he was quite insistent that he didn't slip, that he fell. <laughs> and I think he was just trying to find words to say this wasn't an ordinary human event. This is something else that happened. So I had that experience which gave me this feeling, you know, that I had his, his approval. That, that I could trust myself, which is really what the point was, because it was, he, I had to write it, but I had to be able to trust my 
flow of energy on this. Um, I've been talking for more an hour, and I think I'm going to take a short break here, just for your sake and everyone. Let's just <laughs> let's just let's just breathe for a couple of minutes. Don't any don't anybody really do anything else, but just you know, we'll take five or so minutes. When I first came to India to speak, whenever that was, it would have been after Swami came in 2003. Um, I was quite intimidated because uh, there's so much more information in the, just in the mind of the average person who grew up in this culture than in mine, and I would often be uh, interrupted and corrected when I would speak. You know, I might mention Lord Rama, and then I would get a, like a 15-minute lecture about some detail of the Ramayana that, even though I've read several versions, I hadn't the foggiest idea. You know, and just it would be consistent. There would be just any some little thing that I would say, and and much of it, of course, very interesting. It wasn't like I didn't want to know it, but all it just made me feel was, what am I doing? You know, how 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 can I be standing here and doing this? But over time, I began to figure out something that was very important, and this is what I'm going to talk now about at the end here. That uh, when, when I first moved to Ananda village in 1971, Swamiji was much closer to his original years in India, 1948 and 52. And he loved being in India. I mean, it, it was his culture. He just felt really at home here, and the bhav, and the music, and everything. And so he... and. And he was, we were isolated, we were building our own reality, and he was there leading us. And it, we, it was an Indian tradition, and so on. And Swami wore dhoti and kurta, orange kurta and dhoti. Sometimes in the hot summer, he would go bare-chested and wear this big uh, rudrakshamala. And he would just be in his dhoti walking around. He sang a lot of Indian music. He, had, he, he knew all these uh, just beautiful devotional songs he would just sing for us in the evenings, and he, we, we had Indian names, we wore Indian clothes a lot. I mean, this is like, I don't exactly know why, but we did. And I was living out some semi-fantasy, partly teenage fantasy, partly actual past life memory of some sort of Indian incarnation with our guru in the forest ashram. and So it was half real and half imaginary. Um, when I came to India, and, and growing up in a Western, I was Jewish by my from my family, but the culture was Christian. And I knew that Jesus was part of what Master was teaching. And I learned enough about Christianity to realize that what Master was teaching was definitely not Christianity, the way anybody who called themselves a Christian would have thought of it. But you could see what he was doing. He was taking the original teachings of Jesus and he was, he was using them. So I came to India. And I discovered that what Master taught was not Hinduism either. That it was no more Hindu than it was Catholic. Or it was just about as much Hindu as it was Catholic. Which, which both were valid traditions, but Master was a new expression. And then I began to realize that what I was offering was self-realization according to Paramahansa Yogananda, as I learned it from Swami Kriyananda. And even though everybody in the audience knew a lot more about the Ramayana than I did, they didn't know what I knew, because it was new. And, you know, since then, much time has passed. But seeing you all sing Swami's songs helps me to really appreciate that it's, it's kind of like a tide coming in. It's moving, because we're into this east-west 
reality. I remember saying to Swami at one point, you know, all of us Westerners have had to learn all about the Gurus and the Himalayas. I said, some of those Indians can learn a lot more about Jesus than they know now. Don't you think, don't you think that's fair? <laughs> and his response was, of course. And in fact, actually, many of you are going with me and Narayani and Shurja to Israel in January, because when I, this is, I'm going to just say this fast, but when I was in, in Israel last November, there were two Indians on the pilgrimage, which was otherwise almost entirely Italians. And just looking at them and how much they loved being there, I thought, oh my gosh, this is how to do it. Keshava tells me that Indian people are the best people in the world to bring on pilgrimage, he said, because you just put them anywhere near a holy site. And they just get it almost immediately. <laughs> he said, no, no explanation, no work is required. Just dangle them near a holy site, you know. <laughs> but all of that is relevant to this book for this reason, you know. Uh, Swamiji was, was, was heir, was, was Master's spiritual son not his only son, we're all master spiritual sons and daughters, but Swamiji was a spiritual heir to a certain aspect of the legacy of master, which is unique. And there, I know there's Self-Realization Fellowship, there's YSS, no disciple would be foolish enough to claim that, that I know what the master said, as Swami said, no one disciple can encompass an avatar. It's just naive. No one disciple can encompass the whole of, a, of a, a true guru's message. It's just too big. And every, uh, every master has countless threads, uh, countless uh, smaller families within the bigger family. And all of us have those that we are born to help, and we have our affinities. One of the tremendous benefits of Ananda is that it's so big. Now it's, it's international. And it's so varied, so that everybody can find an affinity, find a place where the teaching really speaks to them. And it can be expressed in countless different ways. I've been in Delhi and Pune, and now here I am in Mumbai. I was in Singapore before that. And it's just so, and I live in Palo Alto, and then there's the Los Angeles community and the Seattle and the Portland community. And everyone is a little different. We're all completely what we are, but we're all just have a little difference. And I mean, this is the tiny part. Swami had from Master a commission, a huge commission. And it, it, it is, as I see it, it was to take what Master had in this cosmic way and to, to pull it into everyday life. It was to create the Dwapara Yuga civilization, basically. There was a, a, a major publishing company in America that uh, the, the, the president of the company met Swamiji and they were, they were soul brothers from some lifetime, and um, he really liked Swamiji, and he therefore thought it would be a good business decision to try to make Swami popular in America. There was an American movie star named Jane Fonda, who probably her name is known, and that same company had her do all these yoga videos, and she became very well known in the, in the yoga for these yoga videos, DVDs or whatever they were. So he says to her, I want to make you the Jane Fonda of meditation. <laughs> I'm, I'm always so amused when somebody, you know, is, they're, they're talking to Mount Everest and they say, you know, I'm going to, 
And they compare Mount Everest to an anthill. You know, like, I'm going to make you as important as Jane Fonda. Oh, wow. You know, it's like, but Swami's response, he, was, he went along with the gag, you know, for a while. He just said to this man, he said, I'm willing to try. He said, but I'm the kind of author who doesn't become famous till after he's dead. And what Swami meant by that was really simple. He was so far ahead of his time. That, but, but this is what the masters do. They lay out a vibration. And of course they have to lay it out way in advance. Especially when you're in a changing yuga as we are, where civilization is rising to it. You know, Jesus, Christianity didn't really become known for about 300 years before it, it, it came up above the horizon line. It was just a, a random group of people just, well, they looked a lot like us. I think they were us, you know. You're on the second floor of some, I don't know where we are, you know. <laughs> it's just like, you just wander around and you come in and when I first came in the door, it was actually, it was so sweet. Because I knew, I'd seen pictures because Narayani and Shurjo send stuff out all the time. Literally, I came in and I went, <gasps> Because it was just so, like, here it is, you know. You come up the elevator, you come up the stairs, you, you, it's just like, how would you know it was here? But when you're here, here it is. And, and really, the whole, this whole path that we've gotten ourselves into, it's like nobody, nobody really cares yet. That's basically how I put it. Like, they really don't care. But if, I mean, this, this world is, I mean, as Swamiji said, like, let me think how this went. Uh, the teen, when Michael Jackson, you know, who was really, really famous, whatever he was, before he became so infamous, um, <laughs> the, uh, the teenagers in our community found out that Swami didn't know who he was and had never heard his music. And they felt that this was a wrong that had to be righted. <laughs> so they provided him with some samples, which Swami dutifully listened to, because you know, he was a worldwide phenomenon. Swami was so honest in his response. The first thing he said after listening, he said, the man is a consummate artist. He said he knows exactly what he wants to say and he says it perfectly. I mean, Swami was just very generous. And he said, and what he says is exactly the vibration of the world at this time, which is why he was popular all over the world. And Swami said, and when I hear him, I realize, Swami says about himself, I am completely out of tune of the world, <laughs> with the world as it is. And, and, and even if, I mean, if we were in tune with this world, we wouldn't be anything of what we are. Because the whole world is just doing something else. But we're the future. You know, we're the present for those of us who have the good karma to see it. And as the present, we're building the future. And Master said there would be tumultuous times, and you don't have to be a prophet to think that might happen. And the reason there will be tumultuous times is because people have forgotten God. And religion has become external. And what is needed now is, is inner communion, Kriya Yoga. Babaji and Krishna have planned the salvation of this age, and it's Kriya Yoga. And how will that happen? It won't happen just like in one minute there'll be this big flash of light and everybody will say, oh yes, Kriya Yoga. You know, it, it grows the way things grow. It just grows very quietly, but steadily and truly with power until finally what I believe will happen is something will happen and society will be redirected. And it's like, as Swami said, they don't know we're here. 
You know, like the people who have power in this world and who are popular, they don't know we're here. But when our turn comes, we, we are here and we're here very strong. We're very strong in our hearts. And what I did when I finally wrote this book is I have the word legacy in the subtitle. Because that, that's what I felt. Swamiji did so much. And you have all his books you, and you have hundreds of hours of his own recordings. Thank God for all this technology. It's just fantastic. So you can just spend hours and hours listening to him. But, but w what I tried to convey, let me think how to say this. Swamiji explained himself a great deal. He explained himself not to everyone, but actually he explained himself a lot to everyone. But not everyone kept track. And I don't mean he explained Kriyananda because he wasn't that interested in Kriyananda. He explained how to be a disciple. He explained how to express these teachings in the world. He explained how you face enormous difficulties and have the difficulties just pass through you instead of becoming you. And he, he once said to us, when I don't know what was going on, he said, you all have no idea how fortunate. For some reason we were all lined up on a couch and I don't know why we were in a straight line, but I have this picture of us sort of sitting like little birds on a wire. Swami started standing in front of us like that. It was, it was just in his living room, so I don't know. Maybe I've exaggerated the geography, but that's what it felt like. He said, you have no idea how lucky you are. He said, I bend over backwards to explain it to you. He said, Master never bothered. He said, Master would just glance at you, give you a word maybe, and leave it to you to find in your intuition. But Swami did explain over and over again how to be a disciple. And he lived it. And then I took a lot of notes. And he wrote a lot of words. So when I finally ended up writing this book, which was after Swami passed, I struggled again for, for some time. And by that time, I'd say I'd had a couple of false starts. So it was not like I had nothing, but I had nothing usable. I just, but I couldn't figure out what the book was trying to be. And I finally just completely stalled on it. I stalled about February of whatever year it was, a few years ago. And I just put it down. And then I went to Ananda village a month or two later and Kirtani from Assisi was there. Her husband has always owned this obscure piece of land up in the, right near Canada in America. And after owning it for 30 years, he finally put this little cabin on it. And uh, Kirtani in her intuitive way said, we have this cabin now and I see you there writing. And it just like, I said, yes. <laughs> I'll go on June 1st and I'll stay until whatever the snow comes, whatever it turned out to be. And as soon as I was completely alone and Anand accidentally put that cabin in such a position that it's behind the mountain so no wireless signals can get through. He, he put it in the one spot on the property where you can't have any internet, which he's, he thinks was awful. I thought that was great. So I have no internet, no telephone, nothing. The nearest neighbor you can see is about a mile and a half, two miles away. It's a thousand miles from where I live. I put all my 15 boxes into the car. If I did one more box, I couldn't have done it. I, I couldn't put any on me because I was driving, but I put them everywhere else in the car. As soon as I was completely alone and had nothing to distract me, Swami started telling me what the book was. That's the only way I can describe it. And in a very real sense, I feel like, I used to type his manuscripts a lot. I felt like this was his manuscript and I just typed it again.
and I was thinking, I was active, it wasn't, I wasn't in a trance, it wasn't automatic writing, but there was just this guiding reality, very exact. I mean, I, I, unfortunately I can't quite remember the example, but I, I used an adjective to describe something that I knew Swami had never used. And he just kept nagging me about that adjective. It just wasn't the right one. And I kept sort of, you know, just dismissing it. And finally, and it was like this. I said, all right, all right. <laughs> and I took it out, and then that was that. It was just settled. And other things like that. Another, play, another time, I, I, there was this great thing he'd said. And the book is chronological year by year. And I became very faithful to years. Every, everything in the year was in that year. And, but I had, I had moved one phrase. I had moved it because I wanted to. <laughs> he just hounded me, like for a week. He just kept hounding me. I mean, hounding me means, you know, I would wake up thinking about it, and I, and I would look at it again, and I would try to justify it, and I would, you know, insist that it was fine, and it really did work. And then I'd go out for a walk, and it would come into my head again that that's not right, it's not going to work. <laughs> Same thing, finally, all right, I'll take it out. So I took it out. As soon as I took it out, perfect peace. And then interestingly, in the right year, bingo, space opened up exactly where it needed to be. And so I, I feel, I mean, I talked about the other book. I really feel like I can stand behind this book. It's the best I could do. But I really felt that he, he dictated it because he wants us to know he, because his way of being a disciple is unique, and Ananda's way of being a disciple is unique. There are many branches of Master's family. We, we don't have to be the best, but we definitely have to be ourselves. And the qualities that, that he manifested are how we can be in tune. And one of the things, I mean, there's, there's a number of things that really could be said, but one of them that's the most important, this is Dwapara Yuga. This is not the age of institutional religion. Spiritual authority should always be respected on a path of self-realization, where self-realization is progressive. Obviously, some people will be more advanced than others. And unless you're a fool, you should listen to the people who are more advanced. But other people's authority is not a substitute for our own intuition. Other people's assurance is not a substitute for our own experience. And that's why Swamiji always explained it to us. He never, and I mean this never, said, Master told me to do it, so we're going to do it this way. I believe Master told him how to do it all the time. I don't think he did anything that, wasn't con that he didn't inwardly and powerfully feel that Master was telling him to do it. But he would always present it to it in such a way that we ourselves had freedom to decide whether or not we wanted to accept it. Because authority, spiritual understanding that is merely just acquiescence to authority and an abdication of our own responsibility for our own spiritual life, it's a comfortable birth and it suits certain personalities, but it's not what Swami brought us. And so this extraordinary balance of independence and cooperation and friendship and respect which is Ananda, which is discipleship as it is, we are meant to live it. I mean, this is the legacy that he's left us. It's a Dwapara Yuga way of doing it. And, and Dwapara Yuga is not Kali Yuga. In Kali Yuga, we got to drop out. 
We got to go into monasteries. We got to go off to caves. We got to just say goodbye to this whole thing. But Dwapara Yuga, spirituality has to come into everyday life. And, you know, the, the question in India always is, my family, my job, my mother-in-law, my children, <laughs> you know, it just goes on from there. My son's exams, that's my favorite, my son's <laughs> exams. I think your kids, I can't tell you, I've never been here when my son was not having exams. <laughs> and therefore, I mean, you just fill in the blank. You all know what I'm saying. And so we all think, if I could just jettison the whole thing, then I would have a better, better spiritual life. I'd be a better Kriyaban. I'd be a better human being. No such luck, kids. This is us. You know, Swamiji's life was in right in the marketplace, right in the mainstream, right committed to this is the time when East and West comes together, when spirit and matter come together, when institutions dissolve and spiritual responsibility is in our own hands and life is run not by obedience but by love, by friendship, by cooperation. It's really a revolution. The thing about it is it's such a happy revolution, you know? Most revolutions that I've been part of in my past lives were really bloody and awful, you know? And so I'm just really happy to be part of this one. And I think this is our our textbook. By no means is it the only or the last. It's a very good starting point because Swami, Master gave Swamiji a great work to do. He fulfilled it perfectly. This is the chronicle of how he did it. And therefore, it's our instruction manual for how we carry on from here. And the good news is it's quite entertaining. <laughs> and it's not heavy-handed because Swamiji exemplified discipleship also in that way. I asked him once, what's Ananda's mission? I, you know, being very intellectual, I expected some kind of an answer. He said, oh, to have fun. <laughs> like that's a famous question and a famous answer. <laughs> to have fun, he said like that, and it was in a community meeting. We all, of course, laughed. We thought he was making a joke. But after we finished laughing, he said, but you have to understand what we consider to be fun. He said, what we consider to be fun is to draw close to Divine Mother and share her love with everyone. But that's, again, what does it mean to be a disciple? And everybody gets so serious and heavy about it. Serious, yes. Heavy, no. This heavy, no. The Jyotish and Devi carry on Swami's beautiful tradition. I mean, they take themselves very lightly. Very, very lightly. But they got that from him. We just take ourselves very, very lightly. We're very serious, but we take ourselves very lightly. Because Ananda's mission is to have fun and to love each other and have the community be a natural expression of our deep friendships for each other. And that's who Swami was. You know, he's the kind of man who'll become famous after he passes because this is how it works. And what you also feel, I hope, from the 220,000 words in that book is how much he loves us. It just, someone came to me once and they were concerned that God didn't love them. And uh, it was a very serious problem and I tried to help her. And after uh, she left, I thought to myself, I have so many insecurities, but I've never doubted that God loves me. 
I sort of wondered, how did I manage to avoid that one? And I, I actually realized, because Swami loves me. And what's so interesting, and I had suspected this would happen. People often ask me before he passed, because of course he was elderly, and his health was not good. He basically made it through the last years because of Narayani and Churcho. They, they sort of carried his body around, almost literally sometimes, so he could stay with us a few more years. Um, oh, let's see, I lost the thought there. Let me just find it. Somebody asked you. What did they ask me? Before Swami left his body. Oh, yes. What would happen when Swami left his body? On a practical level, Swami had turned over so many responsibilities. He'd put Jyotish as his successor. He'd put Jyotish and Devi in charge. On a practical level, it was well done. But what I felt was that as long as Swami was in the body, a tremendous amount of energy was held with him. That's the only way I can say it. Even though he wasn't really administrating anything or even that involved, but, but all the energy was held with him. The way I put it after he died was as long as he was living, the planet had a geographic center. When Swami died, the planet became a, a globe for me with no point, with no point of reference, which was quite disconcerting actually for a long time. But I felt, and I, this is what I've seen, when Swami died, it's like all of that energy became available to everyone. And where, where there had been a certain confinement to his consciousness, and I think this wasn't a statement about his consciousness, it was just the way the incarnation of a great soul works. That once the body was gone, it's like all that energy dissipated and everybody could equally draw it. And I have observed that. I've observed this inspiration that people don't even know necessarily it's coming from him. But this tremendous inspiration is there. And as, ma as masters, children guided by Swamiji, you know, we are Swami's family. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to some of you or maybe I'm speaking to all of you. Swami's family within Master's family, we have an obligation to do it his way. And if that doesn't fit you, you can do it another way. But this book, the music, countless other things that you see expressed here are because this is our way. This is our family. This is our way of doing it. And this book is my contribution, basically. It was my life's work, really. I, I jokingly say, before I published this book, if I had gotten cancer, no matter how serious, I would have had to take all the chemo I could get. <laughs> now, if I get cancer, who cares? You know? <laughs> it's like, I can leave the planet content. And I also feel like one, as soon as I got alone, I always knew that Swami was guiding me. I've always known from the beginning. But, but the writing of the book made me absolutely certain that death is no obstacle. Absolutely no obstacle. He was as present in the room with me as he ever was. One time, just speaking of how he guided me, he and I used to work on writing a lot. And we used to joke about unclear writing and bad writing. We had lots of jokes. For some reason, I wrote this sentence or two, paragraph, that was just the epitome of what we used to make fun of, where you just gather a number of spiritual words together. You know, I think there was a rainbow in there, there was a pole star, you know, there were just a few, th was, there was a few things, devotion was in there. 
and uh, <laughs> it almost made sense. <laughs> it just almost made sense, and I liked the sound of it. And he kept waking me up in the night and saying, you know, take that stupid paragraph out of my book, you know. <laughs> I said, but sir, you know, it's so nice like this. And he would say, it doesn't make any sense. I said, it almost makes sense. Can't you see how it almost makes sense? Finally, really, literally, we're just both laughing because it was such a, it was such exactly like the conversations we had. And he just finally, of course, in a very good-humored way, I admitted, of course, that of course I had to get rid of it. Swami used to say, writers are sometimes terrible editors of their own work because all their ideas are their children and they can't bear to put any of them out in the snow, you know. <laughs> so he was telling me, you have to be ruthless. This is a terrible paragraph. Take it out. And so I did. But it was just, you know, we could have been in his living room over a cup of tea. Now, that is not a story. So you will say, oh, how lucky Asha is. If you, if you think that, I have totally failed. Because I, I knew he was there, but not like I did after I really tried to hear him. But what it told me is he's there. Time and space is no obstacle to all who received him, St. John says in the Bible about Jesus. It has nothing to do with the saint. It has to do with our own hearts. And so we are very, very lucky very, very lucky to be this close to something so great. And once this book was finished after it being, after my worrying about it every day of my life, I'm still traveling around and I'm doing what I'm doing. But it's over, you know. I've, I've given, Swami pinned me to the wall with this project. It burned out, as, it, it burned out as much as I was capable of letting go of. I did my best. With all my heart, I hope it gives to you what Swami gave to me, and I will die happy. <laughs> so, now, now we are going to officially launch it. So I'm actually going to ask you to help me in this respect. This will not be the last book about Swamiji, you know, it's not the first, um, and it won't be the last. But it's a significant, it's a kilo. <laughs> so it's a significant effort. It's also, a, it's a definitive chronology that many people can fill out because it was a chronology from my perspective, but it's a lot. And I believe that Swami wanted me to write it because he believes it will help many people. I feel him, I feel him speaking through it. Much of this book is his own words. And therefore it has a tremendous potential to bring goodness into the world, because he has an unlimited potential to bring goodness into the world. Every one of us was touched by something. A book, a friend who read a book, in my case, a friend who met Swami Kriyananda and said, I've met a real teacher and I think you'll like him. Truer words were never spoken. So somehow this too, in this day and age, can be really helpful, and we're all a part of it. And those of you who are, who are deeply committed to this spiritual family, as I was saying at the end of Kriya meditation this morning, we have brothers and sisters that we don't know yet. And just think how, what a great crowd this is. Imagine more, you know, just more brothers and sisters who are waiting to be awakened and are depending on us to awaken them vibrationally. So I would like you to bless this book 
that it can find the receptive hearts and that those receptive hearts will receive it and be inspired to follow through on the promise that's here and perhaps even eventually be standing not in this room but in the giant temple that we'll need by the time they all come. Oh.